Welcome in, guys. This is episode 20 of All In with Adam. I'm here with my buddy, Jonathan Green. It's been a long time since we've had a deep conversation, brother. How are you doing? It's great, man. Uh, I am doing fantastic over here, just trying to make it like everybody else is with the times. I'm really afraid that we're about to lose a lot of gigs again, but I'm trying not to let that keep me down. Yeah, yeah. And I guess for those that there's a lot of people listen to this podcast, I think that don't know either of us from drum world necessarily. Uh, And so you're a professional drummer full time is gigging how you make a majority of your income. Are you still doing lessons, things like that? Man, I'll tell you what, depending on like, I'd say every six to eight months, it flips back and forth. So I'll get tons and tons of gigs. And then um, I'll get lucky and I'll get students when the gigs fall off. And so it's this kind of seesaw effect of it's both. It really is both. I think one of the things that you're most known for, at least in the drum circles, <laughs> drum circles, the drum <laughs> communities of friends that I run in, right? One of the things, uh, whenever your name comes up, is you are one of the most most technical drummers. And I say that talking to like non-drummers and how they could think of your playing, um, and that it's very, very technical. And, you know, we were just talking before we, we started rolling today that... You know, I'm I'm privileged to know a lot of different drummers, all, all sorts of ones. Some that are that are absurdly famous, and some that are are highly technically skilled, and the whole the whole gamut. And not all of them are suited for being podcast guests necessarily, because I have to apply this filter of, you know, have we had deep conversations before or interesting conversations? And for all of the technicality in your playing. You know, I recall some of the past conversations we've had, and you've got a technicality in your thinking as well. You know, and um, so I just wanted to, to mention that I remembered some of these excellent conversations that we had had at NAM, specifically a big mm-hmm. music convention from several years ago. And uh, so I'm excited to dive into some of those topics because you and I have not necessarily kept up, at least in a in a very like deep or meaningful way over the last few years. But I remembered from the quality of those past conversations that I think this would be a really good one. Well, I definitely was, uh, again, shocked with this is like me (laughs) referencing something that's not even on the podcast. But yeah, uh, with the openness, I guess, in that little house that we were in with all those drummers, how everybody just kind of spoke their mind. And yeah, um, we, if I remember correctly, we talked a little about Sam Harris and atheism and, and these just types of, and I was like, oh my gosh, man. And I want to talk to this guy more because I live in North Carolina. You're in Florida, so I'm mm-hmm. preaching to the choir here. But hey, yo, yeah. you know, Bible Belt all in, day. Right, right. Um, but since then, it's interesting because I, I feel like the state of atheism, the state of just the world is way different than when we had that little encounter before. Very, very different. Yeah, and I would I would imagine both of us have had somewhat of shifting in, in views. I mean, it's hard to be a a deep thinking person, I suppose, and not have your views, you know, sort of knocked around every couple of years in one way or another. Um, where do you line up in terms of the, like, let's just say the the straight down the middle rationalist Sam Harris sort of position? Like, do you still find yourself in that camp, relatively speaking? I definitely pick and choose a lot more than I used to um, because I find myself shifting left more as I get older which is a counter to what I was told that I would do as a kid that, you know, you get more conservative as you get older. And I don't think that's the case. I think that oftentimes 
um, we sort of just get stuck in our ways without really learning anything. And as I sort of take the same critical lens as I've taken to my Christianity outward um, and deconstruct a lot of things, I find that I don't agree with a couple of, like there are some things that I, with Sam specifically that I don't, that I don't agree with, with the intellectual dark web is as it were. Sure. Uh, um, there are just certain sides of things that I, I can't get behind where before maybe I wasn't engaging with that side at all or I wasn't made aware of it because my my, the, my friends and the landscape that I exist in has definitely changed. I know way more um, LGBTQ people and just a more like the people that I know have just changed me, I think. Okay. And so when somebody like, let, let's say that somebody says that um, their outlook on gender is biological, then I think about, okay, so what are you saying? Because these people are separating the ideas of gender from from biological sex are you going to engage with what they're actually saying or are you going to use this weird type of um reductionist argument to say that like well biological sex exists and we have some sort of like naturalistic imperative to fit some sort of like predetermined um social role that issue definitely comes up where people they're arguing within different domains at the same mm -hmm. time, right? Someone pitches a biological argument and someone else says, well, I'm not, I'm talking about social constructionism, biology completely set aside. And right. then you have this, this weird disconnect. And you know, when I, I feel like I brought this up in a, a couple of recent episodes, but do you remember a few years ago where uh, Trump had this, I cannot remember her name, but Trump had a woman who was like, um, a representative of his administration, and she got made fun of for saying that Trump used alternative facts in yes. a situation. Do you remember that phrase, alternative facts? Yep. And I remember thinking that was extremely funny at the time, like what a stupid thing to say. Mm -hmm. But it was recently explained to me that in any given situation, there are an unlimited or an infinite number of facts that can be extracted. And so, mm -hmm. for example, if I asked you to list facts about the room that you're in, mm -hmm. well, you can certainly say that there's a drum set to your right and that there is a red thing on the door behind you and that the microphone you're talking into is likely black. But if you go to the molecular level, well, there's infinite little scratches and markings and all these textures on a microscopic level that that are facts about the room. So the set of facts that you extract from a certain situation can color your opinion. And I think a lot of times this this is why there's these weird disconnects in a in a discussion of gender, let's say, cuz someone extracts the biological facts and someone else extracts a set of sociological facts and then they try to weigh those against each other when you're not even in the same ballpark necessarily and it's difficult to how do you mend those two things together and have a rational conversation when people are starting on in different cities, you know? Yeah, um, you definitely have to, because there is some logic 101 that kind of needs to be gone over in order to approach the conversation. This idea that like, like um, something cannot be like the same yet different, uh, uh, you know, it can't be, you can't have a, a con contradictory statement in the same way at, uh, at the same time, right? A can't mm -hmm. be A and not A. Mm -hmm. 
And so you have to dial in the context first. But the, the problem that I have when I talk to people is even when we dial in on the context, there are these defense mechanisms that occur that kind of allow us to sidestep or escape unconv- like inconvenient truths. Because so I had a conversation and and I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but I did have a conversation <laughs> recently with um, probably a mutual drummer friend or two. And we talked about um, things like Flat Earth. Right. And okay. I feel like the core of Flat Earth is this weird type of hiker hyper skepticism where you have um, almost like like in a new earth type of young earth creationism. Uh, we don't know anything about history because no one was there. And so the deductive <laughs> like formulas we use to derive the closest thing that we could call facts. Oh no, that's my GoPro. Sorry about that. It just cut <laughs> off. You're good. And we use, we, we figure out these systems of what we would consider objective fact that don't, um, that don't have any type of relevance or have any type of utility at all in the real world. Okay, You would never say, I don't believe something because there is a smallest possibility that it might be wrong, right? So if I say the core of the earth, we are fairly aware that the core of the earth is made of nickel, say, and uh, well, how do you know that? Because no one has ever been there. It's like, well, we have these things called spectral lines, which allows us to um, actually not just tell what is in the center of the earth uh, using light, but also stars that are light years and light years away. Well, the person could easily say, well, that's all well and good, but how do you know that's accurate? How do you, like, unless somebody is there observing the thing, and even if they come back, you're not the one doing it. So it's still like a uh, a level, like, removed from any type of fact that I personally can verify. And we get mm-hmm. into the space where can anything actually be confirmed? We get into this like Laplace's demon-esque type of place where reality doesn't <laughs> exist. I've, I've made the same observation from looking at the flat earth community with, with an honest set of eyes and ears, really trying to see what, like, how does this even happen? And, and it is a, a skepticism that is rooted in people not wanting to trust things that they cannot verify, which is understandable to a degree. It's just drawing that line is very tricky. And I think one line that I draw that that has helped me decide, you know, where I'm comfortable placing some version of faith or whether I whether or not I'm okay leaving some skepticism open is is things that I can verify to a certain degree. So like for example, I I do not know how my iPhone works. Like I have no fucking clue. I, I know there's probably a transistor. I know there's probably a computer chip. I, I, I mean, I have some I have some vocabulary words that I can list off of things that probably happen inside of here. But I, I really don't have a grasp on the actual technology in any substantial way. But I do know that my cell phone works. And it always works. It works reliably. It works in a lot of different ways. And so 
it would seem to be a waste of my time to question the validity of cell phone science. It seems to be pretty good. We could say this about airplanes, about a lot of things. But when we're talking about certain things where I I cannot possibly verify to any degree uh, how many gallons of water are in the ocean, you know, how many miles away the moon is, you know, given I'm not trying to verify those things, but it is at least more understandable that someone would live with a certain amount of skepticism because, you know, you're trusting a a science or a team of scientists who you don't know who use tools that you can't name even if i gave you all the tools or let you into the laboratory you don't know how any of this shit works you can't even turn the machine on you don't know what it's measuring or how to measure it and so it's a it it reminds me of that classic episode of it's always sunny where they talked about um you know <laughs> they talked about the bible pouring through you know all of these these ancient writings and letters, and you're trusting the opinions of all of these people whom you do not know. But then you could make the same argument if you were on Team Science. You know, have you poured through the data, the numbers, the figures? <laughs> and so it, there is this irony to that. But um, of course, this doesn't make either of us flat earthers necessarily. But it, it is interesting to entertain that level of skepticism, and it there is an argument there for being that skeptical. But how do you, how do you draw those lines, right? Like, what do you believe in and how do you um, how do you determine whether or not it's worthy of your belief? Right, that's a hard question. I think I first have to separate things into: Are there things that there is a clear path um, from my understanding? Like I could easily not easily that's stupid, but there is a possible world in which I went to college for computer science. Right, if right now my um, my curiosity overtook me, it is not impossible for me to educate myself to the extent in which I could understand how to build an iPhone, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there are certain things th- that doesn't exist in. Like, there are certain types of knowledge that the fields of study don't exist. And and all those tend to be more the sp- uh, spiritual, mystic, um, religious aspects. Um, and so anytime that there's a scientific question, I tend to, I tend to first check to see if any of my biases toward the establishment, um, are going to get into and get in the way of understanding or accepting certain things, because I already love science as it were. Um, if, vaccines are a great example when the vaccine happened when the m um uh, whatever it's called uh, the mrna new, thank I you think. <laughs> uh, thank you um i the first thing i did was read the the pfizer paper on the actual vaccine that was the first thing because i was so sure. curious as to how it worked um how long the process was being worked on, which, you know, that's different than how long it took to develop the COVID vaccine in particular, right? Mm-hmm. The process of this specific type of um, vaccine has in, been in development since like, what, 1998 or something like that. So I am always so interested in breakthroughs. And then whenever this was coming, I, I said, okay, what else? Because I know that if this is a viable, let's if I interacted with it like it's a real viable scientific breakthrough, the thing that I would expect are other vaccines, right? I would expect 
them to work on AIDS and cancer and malaria and other things that we haven't necessarily cracked yet. Come to find out that it's expected, like, for the HIV um, mRNA vaccine to start, like, phase one this year. Wow. Right. And wow. I mean, that's not on the news because COVID is on our minds and that's the thing that's being politicized. Right. But before you know it, um, and this happened to me a couple of years ago when I discovered that one of the he- they had a vaccine for uh, a new hepatitis that I didn't realize that they had had. And it's like no fanfare, like no nothing. It just got added quietly to the schedule. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that we had a vaccine for that now. And I feel <laughs> like as long as it's like that, no one cares, right? <laughs> as yeah. long as it's not pertaining to an emergency or whatever, um, or if it's the type of pandemic or an epidemic, rather, uh, that doesn't affect uh, us in the States, then it's fine. But as soon as we have to do something, look out, all of a sudden, we're, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... Um, I noticed that it was basically business as usual across the board. And I mean, that can be good or bad, you know, depending on the the bad case about the pharmacy, the pharmaceutical industry is primarily like it's off label use for a lot of um, things. They'll quietly start recommending uh, medication for something that it's not approved for. And they've sure. gotten that, into a yeah. lot of trouble doing things like that but with so many eyes sort of forward on this it just didn't make sense like it seemed like skepticism that wasn't a like skepticism towards the industry wasn't necessarily skepticism towards the science and any type of argument that i heard towards the vaccine never addressed what the vaccine actually did it all always affected things like motive and and all of these other things that gets very teamsy for me. Well, I'm in a weird camp, and I, I definitely understand the teamsy element of it for sure. Um, you know, I think one thing I, I've learned, this might be helpful to cover before I say my opinion on, on vaccines necessarily, but I think the, the the team element of it where it's like you are either pro-vaccine, pro-science, or you're an insane anti-vaxxer, I really don't like that that group distinction because I think there's a lot of really valid gray area in between those two camps. And that's where I find myself many of the times. Um, you know, my, my view of the vaccine, I, I think it is a a modern, modern miracle of medicine and science that such a thing could even exist at all. I think it's incredible that we can put any type of a chemical in our body that could prevent us from getting some sort of disease, whether it's COVID or anything else, polio or Spanish flu, or it's incredible that these exist at all. But... I am of the belief that when I think about putting an exogenous man-made chemical into my body, um, you know, my, my thought is I think about something a lot less controversial like Advil, right, or Tylenol, and I will do a whole lot of things to alleviate my headache symptoms before I resort to putting that exogenous pharmaceutical drug into my body. And I know that it's safe. I know it's not necessarily, well, safe is a, is a weird word to say. I know that it's not going to cause me innate danger in, in the present moment. Um, it might not be the best for my stomach lining. And, you know, there's, there's arguments to be had. But the point being, I would prefer to take the, you know, the homeopathic route if that is at all on the table. And so when I assess the death rate of COVID, when I assess 
my diet, my exercise regimen, how I feel about my general health, the lack of, you know, um, I'm, I'm not immunocompromised. I don't have any, uh, you know, pre-existing conditions. I'm not obese. I've never had any respiratory issues. When I assess all of that and the likelihood of me dying from COVID or getting it and irresponsibly spreading it to other people, which I certainly wouldn't do, to me, all of this results in, you know, why, why would I put this exogenous chemical in, in my body? You know, um, and, and I think the unfortunate answer for many people is, is fear is why they would put it in their body. They may have, be in the same circumstance that I'm in where they would gladly chug a bottle of water before they had Advil. They would rather take a nap or they would rather adjust their diet if they were having a stomach problem instead of taking a gastrointestinal medication, right? People behave this way all the time. But when you introduce the element of fear and you're, you're told to be scared in, in, you know, over many, many, many months, because admittedly, when this first happened, it was significantly scarier than it was shortly after. You know, I, I think that is the, a primary motivator for many people. And I do not like the idea of putting an exogenous chemical in your body on the premise of your fear. That is, that's very bothersome to me. It's one of the reasons that I, that I don't have the vaccine is I, I'm, I'm just not scared. I should also clarify, I had COVID actually. Um, it sucked, it was a flu, but you know, I'm pretty confident that I'm young and healthy and do a lot of things to proactively take care of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, that particular perspective. Wow, because that well, that was a lot. I I sort of agree with you, um, especially knowing sort of how you are. You you do take good care of yourself. I know you watch what you eat. I know you don't drink, um, and those other other things. And so like there is a consistency that makes it a little bit different to talk to you about this than it does with someone else that. Um, will use a similar argument, but I I realize that there are these inconsistencies with that argument uh, through their lifestyle. So, okay, so sure. it's a very so it's a very interesting th- um, thing to to bring up. Um, the fear thing, I think, is where I would start because I think the issue with that is is framing. Whenever I think about how the vaccine was introduced, I think about because it was introduced into the Trump era, right? And I'm no fan of of Trump, but I went on the record. Uh, of saying that, like, I feel like that was the best thing that he'd ever done, or at least the best thing that he uh, he had ever gotten behind, right? Okay. Um, because my my dislike of Trump didn't affect the way that I thought about like vaccines or that like area of science in general. Um, and so it really has. So you could go two routes here. You could think about like the what we when we talk about fear. I don't think you use the framing of fear to um, take care of yourself or to to not do certain things, even though you know that if you stop taking care of yourself, if you start like drinking heavily or whatever, it's going to produce negative outcomes, right? So, but you never use the framing of fear to a- avoid those outcomes. So it's interesting how you think about that as being different, maybe because of its uh, it being an internal motivation versus an external motivation with the vaccines, especially since it's, pushed on you by the government and media outlets specifically on the left um you see what you see what i'm saying like to me apart from the internal external thing there doesn't really seem to be a different motivation for getting the vaccine because we're both hopefully going towards the same ends like health and well-being sure yeah i do understand yeah i understand what you're saying i think um 
Oh, it's a tricky one, man. It's really tricky. I, I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts of the the various camps of people that are that are unvaccinated? There's many reasons to not be vaccinated. You, you've heard mine, obviously. But what is your perspective on on the left and the the what I would perceive? Maybe you would disagree, but I would perceive it as as a very intolerant view of those who are merely unwilling to get vaccinated that, you know, obviously in New York, there's, um, there's, you know, new lockdowns, vaccine passports are a very real thing. Now, do you see as someone who is oriented towards the left, do you see a line that cannot be crossed when it comes to verifying whether or not someone has put a chemical in their body? So the thing that comes to mind with getting into this type of conversation is constitutionality. And it's not, is it constitutional? It's precedent. The idea, the things that we use ID for in this country and the things that we defend not needing ID to have, right? Because any type of ID or traceable anything on the gun argument tends to fuel um, cries towards communism. There are camps that I have observed that have a very, very libertarian uh, perspective on gun ownership because it's in the mm. constitution, right? That the mm. government really should have no business getting in the way in any shape or form in regulating or controlling um, the amount types or like, or the people that would have guns in this country. And there are a few exceptions, even though these things are contentious. Uh, people that have felonies, people that have mental health concerns, sure. whatever. And but so there there's, is no, diverse... there's no database for guns, right? ultimately, right? right? That, that That's right. a big line in that discussion. Sure. That's, that's kind of my point. And so when I think about things like that, um, I think about that. That to me is the direct analogy to because we're. <laughs> we're allergic to databases, even though like we're all, you know, uh, we all have social security, no like the government knows where we are, what we do, how much money we make, like all of these things. And, and it's interesting, the lines that we draw, I, I sit from the left. Um, because I think that some of the things I'm about to say, actually cut both ways. It's this idea okay. of teams and virtue signaling, this idea that because there is a view that the left is the logical scientific party, that it is the thing that we uh, that's our flag. And it's easy for us to beat down because like facts and, and whatever, even though for some strange reason, facts don't care about your feelings is a, a slogan on parts of the other side Shapiro, i don't know if i yeah. i don't know if i really have an answer to that question because i am not necessarily interested ever in the sides thing i am only really interested in comparison comparing arguments and seeing if i can figure out like if there are trends in like belief and how we defend like our beliefs in these types of situations so I, I think one of the things this this type of conversation gets us into is is honestly role of government like big picture you know what what is it precisely that people like you and I would would want from the government and I should clarify I'm I don't identify as a purist conservative by any means but but as you mentioned you know you've you've grown older and you find yourself orienting towards the left I've honestly found the opposite I orient towards towards the right in my natural disposition a bit more for me, when I think about role of government, I, I've grown more accustomed to the idea of a, of a smaller government. And the problem that, that, that I run into is that 
I, I tend to like when we shrink the the ideal government down to to its original purpose, which we're very far away from in this country. But the original purpose of government was to protect the natural rights of individuals. Now, natural rights are already kind of a debatable territory because deciding what rights you have that are innate, that we don't actually create, but rather you're born with them, we're kind of dancing in belief in God territory, right? Like who says you have the right to speak? Because if we don't, you're saying that the universe does, right? That you have this innate human value. And of course, one of the coolest thing the founding fathers did was was negotiate those rights. They didn't just say, it's not blind religion, like the Bible said you have a right to speak, therefore freedom of speech. We negotiate what those are. An example of that would be libel and slander and defamation, and it's not infinite speech, but we negotiate these things. And that was the original purpose of the American government, was here's your natural rights, we've got a list of them, we're gonna make sure that nobody infringes upon them, and there was no other function of that government. So when we get into... Something as complex as like government infusing into the private healthcare system in this weird fucking way, like regulating marijuana laws when it's legal in certain states and not in others. We have this disconnect of the federal and the state level law. Like this to me is so outside of the government's scope. It's not at all what it was intended to actually do. Really, that what the government was intended to do is just make sure that nobody violates our rights. And beyond that, everything belonged to us. And so when we get into, I don't know, some of the ideologies of the left that, that would like to play the role of the nurturing mother, so to speak, where the government mm. can solve problems for you, it can help you and, and meet these needs for you. My response as someone who orients slightly conservatively is I, I want precisely nothing from the government other than protection of my rights and everything else. I think we the people can do a significantly better job. At, at you know solving those problems, but I'm curious how that strikes you as someone left oriented. I think that there are a couple of things that the government wasn't okay. First of all, as a black person, it's hard for me to think about what the government was meant for originally because we are already like my my people were already not a consideration um, in in the original form of the United States government and constitution. And so I am already on the side of there are certain things that we need to throw out, but we have to be careful not to be like not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Sure. That makes me sound like a centrist a little. Right. Because I'm not for like a type. I'm not for radical like. I'm not radically like trying to destroy the American government or the constitution or anything like that. Right. I think that's where leftists kind of get a bad rap. We want to deconstruct things and figure out what is working and what, what isn't. And so, and what, and if something isn't working, not just to throw it out, but why? Because it's like you have all of these programs that oftentimes either get gutted before their original intentions are ever ever seen or they have the proper legs to do what they need to do and then the other side because i'm not going to do the the right does this and the left does this all these are political games mm. but the other side um can easily just say hey we tried it your way even though that never happened and and see and see what happened you guys failed and it's like no i mean we failed because not everybody was on board. I'm not like a utopian person. I'm not expecting everybody to like hold hands and do the kumbaya thing, but we have to also call a spade a spade whenever you have a, um, 
gosh, the type of government that we have, which is a very contentious, like adversarial yeah. government, like we're we are always and on some level looking for the scraps of whatever the other side will compromise with. And that is something that we have our founding fathers to thank for, right? Like the way that, (laughs) and because they thought that an adversarial government was the best form. Mm -hmm. And now I could see how a couple of ways that's not the truest thing. I mean, the easiest, the easiest idea is, is wartime. Right. We there. The president would not have emergent uh, emergency powers if the founding fathers did not see it fit to say, okay, there are some times that exist in the in life that we we have to be led apart from like the populace's opinions. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's. And and so it doesn't matter who what conservative I, I talk to. The army, the the armed forces are something that most conservatives that I talk to abide because they understand that that is what you are talking about, protecting freedom or protecting like your, the rights instilled by whomever. Mm -hmm. But the question to me is, is that the only thing? Like, are, are we, are we as individual citizens equipped to deal with literally everything else except for war. Hmm. Well, arming a population was certainly factors into that a little bit. Well, I, I am curious. True. Yeah. Well, so I am curious about the the idea that the that eternal battle, like you said, it's an adversarial government. The entire set setup of the American government is definitely adversarial and it was intended to be that way infinitely that just fight it out into eternity sort of thing. But to drag this Mm -hmm. conversation into the philosophical realm, um, are you familiar with the concept of it's often, it's called different things, but um, universal polarity, which would be like chaos and order. It sounds like a, something that I heard Jordan Peterson reference It's a bit once. Jordan Peterson, yeah, and um, Jonathan Piaget, Carl Jung. It's sort of in that that camp. Okay. So we're, we're dancing with the mystics a little bit. Um, but the idea would okay. be that from in many different domains, let's start with an easy one like microscopic levels. So we've got positive and negative ions. There's sets of two. We go to hormones. We have testosterone and estrogen. There's sets of two. Uh, we go to sex and gender, obviously. We can we can branch that conversation off, but you know, biologically speaking, and only biologically speaking, there are males and females across uh, all species. Um, we can go through many, many, many different domains, even in personality distinctions of someone who is very tactical or militant versus someone who is um, open and extroverted and creative. There's this spectrum of chaos and order, or how things are and how things could be. That's another way to say it. And the idea would be. That if you apply that filter of chaos and order to the the parties, the progressive scientific party, which is the party of all things creative, that's why it's all music, all Hollywood, all actors, all, right? All creative types seem to be oriented towards the left. It's very forward thinking. It's scientifically minded, but it's the the creative party by all means. Then the party of order, the party who loves guns and military and you know tradition, uh, the party that's predominantly more religious. That's clearly the party of order. And when you take chaos and order and you set them at each other and you make them dance forever, this sort of seems to be how chaos and order work 
it's it's how they work in in every other domain you could find an example right like you can't have positive all positive ions you need positive and negative you can't have all testosterone you have to have a balance of estrogen there are very predetermined almost like like natural law that that predetermines the ratio of chaos and order in different domains there's a ratio of testo- testosterone to estrogen in our body and if we fuck with that, you're going to be pretty miserable. There's like a dance that happens naturally. And so my thought mm-hmm. about the American government is to create the most the most powerful nation that has ever existed in human history, the cultural epicenter of the world in 200 plus years only, just that short amount of time, we seem to be the first culture that set up chaos in order to dance forever. And said, here's the proper way to orient yourself within the world. It's to take these ideologies, which which are historically have been at war with each other. I mean, we have Judeo-Christianity, which is natural law and hard religion versus Aristotle's, you know, Greek reason. But America seems to marry those two things together. And the founding father said, how about you guys just fight it out forever? And in 200 years, we have the most, again, the most powerful cultural epicenter that the world has ever seen. And so I can't help but wonder if we're doing precisely what is supposed to be done. That's a very interesting story. It's interesting that like, I, I think that we'll never get tired of the chaos and order because we're, for some reason we like binaries, mm-hmm. even though that doesn't necessarily always pan out in nature either. From the fundamental forces, I mean, sure, they're like positives and negatives. And really, that's just a description of, of interactions between certain elements or certain like um, between magnetic poles to um, ions, as you're talking about. We use those words to describe their relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, not as sort of like an essential quality that like positiveness and negativeness and like a like a Pluto or like a, you know, like that type of sense, like the world of forms, like there is a, a essence of positive and essence of negative. Um, I, I think that oftentimes we tell those stories descriptively and then we use those stories prescriptively. There is a, and my little example has to do with the animal species thing. It's like we could talk about male and female, but even that is contextual because there are plenty of species that biologically change um, between male and female in their life cycle, depending on the circumstances. Um, If there is a, if there are not a lot of uh, males, you know, they'll actually switch sexes, Mm -hmm. right? And that's nothing to talk about the species that um, procreate asexually, right? Not even, I don't want to talk about like their their, um, evolutionary viability because there's this thing about like gene mixing and how that makes you stronger as you go and because you're blah, blah, blah. Like that's, but, but the story of binaries, as useful as it is, I wonder if that is actually like, not only is it true, I I have to question, is that like, is that good for us? Because Mm. it's interesting that, you know, you say uh, chaos and order, but part of that chaos is not only the ingenuity of industry and the, the, uh, manifest destiny-ness of the pioneering American spirit. It is the fact that 
we were also racist and we thought that we had a God-given claim to certain things and like other cultures and other people be damned. Now, it, you have to look at both sides of that coin to sort of see like where we are. And so I feel like, again, that's a cool framing of it. But whenever you look at certain elements through a microscope, it seems like you have like three poles. You have like positive, negative, and neutral. Right. Okay. Where you I, can yeah. have. You, you I know? see what you're saying. I think one of the things that that makes chaos in order so hard to describe in these binary terms, and why you would argue that hey, it doesn't seem to be that binary, is because they are. They're like eternally dancing would be the philosophical way. That's the Jordan Peterson way to say that. And so it is, sure. you know, because clearly you're not a you're not an entity of testosterone, right? You, you have to have estrogen in your body or it's a total nightmare. So to say you are one or the other is incorrect. It is not really binary. It's sort of like the one and the zero have to merge into this weird new number. And that's kind of neutral. And sure. And very much in the same way, like like. Uh, I'm of the belief that gender expression is very clearly fluid. We we very clearly have biological men who act quite feminine, and we would have biological mm -hmm. females who act quite male. And I think it, it it the dancing of chaos and order theoretically is one of the things that makes it so hard to pin down what is chaos and what is order, and how you would you would really put those in two separate camps. Um, but I think they're just so infinitely smashed together that it's very, very tough. Po political ideologies are, are the same way. You know, it's a shame when people make politics so deeply binary and separate these parties, when in reality, everyone should be all across this very, very nuanced spectrum. You know, of course, I hope that's the case. Um, we're, we're taught that it's really not. But I think many people, that's actually the case. They have very, very conservative ideals, depending on the topic. And then they might go very liberal, depending on another topic. Um, but I, I'm curious, big picture, you said you find yourself orienting more left. In what ways specifically do you find yourself gravitating towards the, I suppose, a more like constructionist view as opposed to a the God-fearing view would be the alternative. <laughs> well, there are certain libertarian conversations, and I guess libertarian left is the idea where um, because any libertarian that is a free market libertarian would usually like grant that we don't actually live in a free market right now. Like the government and business is so, they're so intertwined with each other that um, we don't know what a free market society truly looks like. And that could be on two different levels. It could be on more the conservative side that businesses are regulated to death. Mm -hmm. um, and the things that businesses have to actually give uh, as far as like permits and zoning to what they have to uh, uh, give to their um, employees all the way to standards like uh, minimum wage and uh, mandatory days off and things like that. There, all of those things should be outside of the purview of government. Wow, that's not right? particularly left leaning um, of you to say that. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. But that, I'm, I'm actually talking about a libertarian perspective. I agree. My whole I agree um, completely. There are a couple of things. So Joe Rogan uh, was talking to, I think, Dave Rubin on a, on his podcast, and he was actually very supportive in to like to government regulation in certain contexts, like construction. He was talking about how he was in construction before, like as a kid, because his dad was an architect, and he was talking about how like all he saw were like dirt bags 
trying to cheat the system because if you have a like a profit mo a system that's a profit motive and you're trying to get things done as fast and as cheaply as humanly possible you know that time is money and you know that like if you can move on to the next job the more money you'll make and without and what he said was without some sort of oversight and what some without someone going back and checking and making sure that you actually did these things correct that people were were dirt bags, especially in construction, because those types of problems were not immediate. You could have a home and pro like problems with that home won't manifest five, ten years down the mm-hmm. road, right? Mm-hmm. And and the and it just puts a lot of onus almost to wrap things back around to the uh, scientific skepticism argument, where we know that we don't have the bandwidth to be experts in absolutely everything um, that we do. It's like free market capitalism um, in its wild west sense would require a populace so educated and so like savvy to the way markets work that like we have like that's what it would take for us to be rational actors in that type of situation. Yeah. because we don't have we wouldn't have a proxy in order to, to deal with. We would have to be like because there'd be nothing in between us and that person that may be good or, sure. or bad. That's sort of the argument against that type of free market libertarian. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, you mentioned there's certain games that we've certain things that we've attempted to roll out in government, but we don't, we don't fully play the game till till its final conclusion. We don't let ideas actually get fleshed out all the way. And part of the pushing and pulling nature of the government is why it has, you know, hard to let things play out when an administration flips every four years and they can undo everything that was done. And I, I do understand that that's a really valid point, but when we talk about like removing code uh, from like a construction company, for example, so they can cut corners, and if profit is the primary motivator, that they would cut many, many corners. Uh, you know, at some companies certainly would do this, and that those problems would manifest themselves, you know, all throughout the country for you know, and who knows how long it's going to take for that game to reach its final conclusion. But I want to give you one one really weird example of. When the government never stepped in and we let a game run its course all the way through to the final conclusion. Have you ever seen the documentary on HBO called Action Park? It's yes. You seen it? About yeah. that fucked up uh, water park mm-hmm. up in New Jersey? Yep. Right. Okay. So yep. so for those that don't know, I'll give like a brief synopsis of it. It was like the first water park in the whole country. There were no rules, no regulations on any kind of place like this because it had never existed before. So like... I mean, they had water slides that had nails sticking out of them. They were going to Home Depot or Lowe's and just buying some plywood and building crazy shit for teenagers to jump off of. Teenagers were working as lifeguards. They were totally untrained. They had go-karts there and all these weird things that you could rent. Kids were taking them out after hours. It was horrible. There was there was a few kids that died. Tons and tons of injuries, concussions, broken legs, lacerations. It was brutal. And somehow... Despite there being a lot of like legal attention on this place, the game that was Action Park was allowed to run its course. It was never actually shut down by the government. There were some lawsuits and there were some threats, but it was it was never actually deemed to be the egregious place that it was, and it was left open. And what happened was after this long period, almost two decades of chaos at this place, cultural, like on a cultural level, people just stopped going. 
They just stopped going to the super dangerous water park because the stories collectively just changed people's impression of what this place was. It wasn't this fun adventure anymore. It was kind of like, yeah, fuck that place, man. You're probably going to get hurt and pe- people stopped going. And to me, this was an example of allowing a truly free market to run its course. It's very slow mm-hmm. and it's very dangerous. And yes, people are definitely going to get hurt along the way. But ultimately, ultimately, you're left with the right decision was made by the people and that place no longer exists because it literally just classically went out of business. Nobody wants to go here anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I think about when we have construction companies who are no longer regulated in their code, building code by the government. Yes, they're going to build shitty houses. They're going to build a lot of them. And it's going to take a long time for those houses to fall apart when the hurricane comes or when the storm blows through. It's going to take a long time to figure out who those people are. But I'm of the belief that those people who act without integrity, who cut all of the corners that they can, that they are existentially doomed, that a free market does not support these types of people for a very long time. And so it's almost like Mm -hmm. if we can bite our tongues for 20 years... A truly free market, we're almost borderline like anarchist territory where everything is truly ours. Um, I, I do believe that a fully free market society with no government regulation at all, I think it can survive. I just think it's 20 years of chaos until we get there, much like the closing of Action Park. It takes a long time for culture to catch up. Yeah, but, you know, the the, the calculus of the people that get hurt or will die it's um, very different. I think as a lefty, <laughs> you like as a lefty, that's where I, I come in and I'm like, OK, like I care about loss of life. And um, are these certain things is, is my ideal of freedom worth that? Like, you know, because it's not even let's say freedom. Um because like freedom is used in as such a weird type of buzzy thing that I feel like when people say freedom, like you're taking my freedoms away or like I stand for freedom or as people should have as many freedoms as possible. Um, I, I agree with that to the extent that I feel like people should be able to do what they want as long as it doesn't hurt others. Mm-hmm. But um, but when people are hurting others, like I feel like that is action park, right? And I I feel like if there's a human cost to the corrective nature of the free, the slow corrective nature of the free market, and there is a system that could um, do that better as to not have such a human cost, I feel like that um, avenue should be explored. Well, there is a, a distinction in there though, and it, it's a, it's a difficult distinction to articulate, but it is the difference between positive and negative rights. So you said, right, yeah. right, and, and this is one of the things that, this is how you would pitch the argument for leaving Action Park open, is that you had the right, or rather, the individuals that went and got injured chose to go there and participate in the game that was Action Park, right? And of course... You don't want malicious characters to be intentionally harming people that go to Action Park, right? That's certainly a different thing, but that's a positive action on their part. Rather than saying, we made a dangerous water park and you can come or not come, to me that is like, it's, it sounds really weird, but that's a fundamentally American idea, that there's dangerous elements of this adventure, but you have the right to choose, or another example, here's a better one, predatory lending. Can we stay on the action park for a second? Sure, sure, sure. Because I I feel like there's still some untapped thing in there. Like for instance, like 
I wouldn't expect. So I, I feel like you're right. That is a definite part of like American culture with that danger and like risking your life. Like, you know, you could talk about um, skydiving or whatever. Knife which juggling. Has, like, oh, yeah. Risk. But but I don't consider I, and I would make the argument that the initial crowds of people that went to this park did not consider that a theme park would be in the same category as some of these extreme types of entertainment as, you know, I just I just mentioned. So, I, I mean, what does that say? So, sure, that is a part of our society, but shouldn't don't we have at least shouldn't we have some reasonable expectations about the things that we're either purchasing or the experiences that we like sign up for? I think, well, that's a complicated question. I mean, in a, in a utopia, yeah, we should have plenty of expectations. Uh, of course, we know that there are, will always be bad actors out there in every domain. There's always going to be those people, but it's a question of if we, take Papa government out of the equation altogether, get rid of all of those regulations, and you run the game to its conclusion, which is like, let the Mm -hmm. free market go for, and seriously, a very, very ridiculous amount of time, maybe 50 years, to find out how this sort of thing stabilizes. Like, I don't know that the experiment of true Wild West free market capitalism has ever really, really been run, because people will make the argument that the left does and say, hey, Look, people are clearly getting fucked over. Can't we do something about this? And the answer is yes, you can do something about it. Hence all of the regulations that we live under now. And many of them are, are quite easy to appreciate. Like I'm glad that there's that there's building codes. I'm sure glad that the plane you and I go to, to fly somewhere in has been inspected, right? Like that, that sounds pretty good. But what happens if we remove all regulation and we like does Western capitalism, free market society, if it was left truly alone, does it solve these problems eventually? And that's sort of my question. I'm not saying it wouldn't be incredibly dangerous in the the path to get there. A whole lot of people are going to die. Planes are going to fall out of the sky. Action parks are going to pop up all over the place and kill a bunch of people. That's definitely going to happen. But I wonder if the game's conclusion might be that only trustworthy people of integrity are even invited to play the game because it's the only game in town is the one where you don't fuck people over, right? Because I mean, how long can a corporation exist cutting corners? You know, does the government serve as a, as a crutch to those sort of people, allowing them to play these in and out games forever? This is an interesting uh, perspective. And this is something that I thought about as soon as it brought the topic up. Okay. Because on the other side... You could talk about corporate welfare being like such that that's exactly what government does in most cases. And you, a lefty like me, would blame the role of uh, money in politics as the cause. This idea that you have undue influence by these these bad actors that basically allow for cover for um, corporations to do like misdeeds. Yeah, good example. Like, uh, from the banking Housing crisis, crisis yeah. to, I think it was Purdue and um, is, uh, it was a drug. It was a drug that a lot of people were like an opioid or opioid replacement that like okay. was getting mishandled and caused a lot of addiction. I can't remember. Um, but it was, it was an, it was this type of like off label use situation um, where you already have those outcomes. The thing that, 
I guess I'm concerned about is it death? Mm-hmm. It's more death than we have now, right? We all people are always going to die. How much more death is tolerable um than like the average? Like how much more above yeah, the average? It is. And that that's almost back to the COVID argument, right? Like, do we expect like if if everything like if, if everything is to be believed, um is it acceptable that there is an uptick of like five or six hundred thousand people in the situation that we're in um, above um, the average of mm-hmm. the past three or four years? Like, is that something that um, is worth doing mask mandates or uh, occupancy occupancy mm-hmm. restrictions or or vaccines? I land on on the yes camp because. I mean, I feel like the science, if, if we looked at it apart from values, apart from freedom and like the role of government in society, if we just looked at the injection, um, I am convinced as of right now that the vaccine itself, if, if it's not preventative, um, and if it's not like, okay, it's going to shield you and give you some protection because there is there is some evidence to show that like the damage done by COVID is alleviated by this vaccine, not just the fact that we because breakthrough cases are not a surprise. Like if you, if you remember, they talked about the percentages of people that would still get COVID even after the vaccine. Right. But they were trying sure. to mitigate the amount of deaths um, by COVID. So if you take all that into account. I believe that if the vaccine, if it, if, if it's not, if it's not beneficial, then the worst it is to okay. me is it's benign, right? So I because what I haven't seen are consistent studies on a large scale showing that it is. I mean, uh, okay, I am aware of the Israeli myo. Um, the myocarditis sure. stuff and what happened with Johnson and Johnson. I know about um, the various database. I've known that because I've talked sure. about vaccines with people for years and years and years. Um, but, but to me, I don't think that it has been shown that taking the vaccine itself is harmful. Well, I think one of the, one of the sketchy territories of that conversation is that the approval that it got from the FDA was was not a standard approval by the FDA. It was for an emergency purpose, right? So it has it hasn't been given the same level of testing that virtually all other vaccines have. And I get I get mm-hmm. really troubled. You know, Fauci had a specific thing he was talking about in a video I saw recently where he said, you know, many women are concerned for purposes of, of fertility. They're, they're concerned that this would cause fertility mm-hmm. problems down the road because clearly that has not been tested yet. I mean, the, the, the babies who were conceived uh, in a vaccinated mother are either not born or they're certainly not adults yet. Right. So th- there are some elements of unknown. It's just untestable at this point in time. And, you know, Fauci, the the world leading expert on this particular topic his his best explanation was, you know, babies are still getting born, you know, and for, for me, I, I, I think it is very valid to say that's not good enough. That is not evidence enough that there is nothing that, that, that it is. It is merely benign I, to me. The, the verdict that the vaccine is purely benign 
can't possibly be in yet. Now that that might be more than likely that that if it's even if it's totally ineffective, that at the very least it would be benign. My argument would be that there's not enough data to make a conclusion like that, right? I mean, especially when we're talking about time sensitive, um, or rather. You know, things like 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 pregnancy and fertility, which take at least nine months for the child to develop. And then these children have to grow up and we have to make sure that they don't have any other type of condition. Right. So there are a couple of things, because this is one of those conversations where details are hopefully like they're important. What are the types of things that would affect pregnancy or what are the types of things that we would expect to affect pregnancy. What is the makeup of the vaccine and what does it actually do? Um, and like, given what we know about vaccines and our immune responses, um, is there anything about vaccines in the past or th vaccines now that affect pregnancies? Like those are questions that like, I, so I never hear, I never hear actual arguments. I only hear the types of arguments that, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, um, that I hear from creationists. Okay. Right? Like, to me, that is, because I, I feel like I was very careful to say that for me, as of right now, I think X, right? And and it's I can only operate from the things that I know. So that, to me, is sort of this weird conversation of, like, how much, for, for one, the, the amount of, time for something to be credulous as far as uh, scientific studies and the impact on um, the human body. All of that stuff is variable depending on the person I'm talking sure. to. So I'm not even going to ask like what your specific threshold is because I already have a feeling that barring all of this other stuff, that there are many FDA approved things that you still won't take. Sure. But there very well might be. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so, if, if that is the case, I'm always, I guess, concerned about, like, what else is there? Because there, if, if let's say that I do, because I didn't come in, like, with notes or anything <laughs> sure. like that. I, I, I couldn't, I can't study for a test that I don't know that I'm totally, taking. Totally, totally. You're um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but let's say that I did have the numbers on the, the births that have been, um, perform on vaccinated mothers since um, the pandemic. And it, they are positive, right? That at least gives, that is not zero evidence. Like we can't abstract that infinitely into the future, but we can't do that with anything. Sure. I'm not saying that their skepticism isn't valid in this case, because I think skepticism is valid um, in most of these cases. But the thing that I'm trying to, so absent that, that type of, um, long-term study, are there positive pieces of evidence that can be used to justify some of these positions? Sure. I think it would be a question of how much. Like, does the evidence... The, the evidence that you could provide, for example, there have been some, certainly, certainly some babies born, some healthy children born from vaccinated, but certainly. The question would be, have we played the game long enough? Is there a body of evidence enough to support something, right? And of course... There are going to be some children born with, let's just say, medical problems or complications within the pregnancy, and it's difficult to attribute them to the vaccine or not, right? Like you could have an autistic child that was always going to be autistic, but the fact that they're vaccinated complicates the body of evidence in a certain way. And for me, what this gets into is like, 
it's like risk tolerance. And it's, it's both parties actually play this game very, very often. Um, you know, you, you, what level of risk you're willing to tolerate to do something. And it's funny that conservatives tend to look at the vaccine and they see, let's just say, some version of a risk in taking it, that there's these unknowns to it. But leftists will look at COVID, the, the, the disease in of itself, and they see a certain level of risk there where, you know, there are, despite anybody of evidence, I believe that there are conservatives who will absolutely never take a vaccine no matter what. It doesn't matter what the evidence ever says. They just won't take it. And then I believe there are lefties who who will, let's just say, want want the government to, to take extreme action regarding COVID until there are zero COVID deaths, that they will not tolerate the risk of a single death. And in both cases, you can make the argument that that a certain level of, of risk needs to be tolerated, right? And I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting that I think both parties are actually playing this game at the exact same time. They're just they're talking about different topics, right? I don't think you believe that we live in a world where we can ever achieve zero COVID deaths. That's not going to happen. People are definitely going to die from COVID. There's just a certain level of risk that you're that you're willing to tolerate there. And I'm I'm I don't know. It's very frustrating that this seems to be one of the poles that we can never agree on, like left and right, is what, what is what precisely people are willing to tolerate. And I think risk of sacrificing freedoms is one of the risks that conservatives are not willing to tolerate, like in any capacity whatsoever. And one idea, I think we've danced around this like three or four times, but we've we've talked a lot about effectively what is the cost of freedom. You know, what do you think we have to pay to be free? And what's your definition of freedom? I think that's really central to everything that we're talking about here. And I think the far right and the far left have very, very different views on not only the, the definition of freedom, but the price that they're willing to pay for it. Um, and then again, their risk tolerance for things like exogenous chemicals put into their body versus people dying from a, a flu, you know, it's very complicated. Yeah, but I, I feel like oftentimes, like a, a very cynical way, the um you seen that movie network uh i've not oh so you should see it because it's basically a commentary on like uh on news it's almost like it's almost like they live ish is like a sort of type of commentary on how we interact with media okay. and, and things like that uh, basically a newscaster um have you ever seen the have you ever seen newsroom on hbo I don't think I have. I feel like I've seen the thumbnail, but that's it. Yeah, everybody's seen the thumbnail. Everybody's seen that little clip about like everybody, like American exceptionalism or whatever. Um, Aaron Sorkin's a genius. But um, the idea is that like from network, at least, is like people's idea of freedom is, is like, you know, just leave me alone. Just leave me with my television and you know, like my little... Uh, Leave me my life. Leave me my my movies and my microwave and <laughs> like the things that I like to do. And just don't don't bug me. Just don't just let me have my little corner and just let me mm -hmm. let me live. And he's basically giving a cry for paying attention. And and when things are like wrong, actually getting angry and using your voice instead of just being complacent and just watching the same old shows and tuning everything out. And it's interesting. I, I sort of agree with your assessment about the right and the left and as far as freedom goes, because with me, I, I think that I have a question for you. Okay. Do you think that we as human beings on a grand scale, like in the world, can actually make the world better? 
fundamentally. Do you think that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's so many levels to that question, right? You, you know what you're asking too. Um, fundamentally, I would say yes with extreme limitations. Extreme limitations. Okay. Um, and this gets into, are you familiar with Thomas Sowell, the economist? Mm-hmm. So his his description of this I like a lot. He talks about the constrained view of the world versus the unconstrained. And the constrained view would be that we are we're operating under natural law, that there's only so many things that we're able to affect uh, like about this world, that there are, let's just say, social hierarchies that, that we're never going to get rid of. Uh, Pareto distribution is another fascinating example of that, how, why wealth accumulates at the top to a very small percentage of people. And most people are, are not in that group at the very bottom. Um, th- there's things like this that that constrain the world that we live in. They constrain our societies and that every attempt we've ever made to to construct the world differently outside of these air quotes natural laws, they ultimately fail. And hmm. the unconstrained version would the unconstrained view of the world would be that we can effectively construct any version of humanity that we can think of. And this is really synonymous with a, a belief in God, a higher power, a pre-existing um, natural superpower that that has some sort of weight on, on our existence here. There's some rules that cannot be bent. And then, of course, the other view would be that if it's truly unconstrained, that one day we'll quantify consciousness and we control every single aspect of this entire existence. We can construct any reality that we want to construct. And naturally, I tend to fall into the the constrained view where I, I there's a few natural laws where I, I just don't see how we're going to navigate our way around them. You know, per- perhaps science will trample into those domains at some point, but I don't think you and I will live to see things like that. Well, it it's interesting that... First, like natural law is such a loaded term. Very, right? very. Where, uh, big because I feel like some of that's sort of social. I think that we've already done things within the past thirty years that people maybe two, three hundred years ago would gawk at. Either they call it witchcraft, or they would just not understand like how these things are possible because of the of how they think about the world right and so the view doesn't necessarily on a surface level reading because i haven't read what you've read and we only i only have that statement to work with on a surface level reading it doesn't um allow for paradigm shifts say Mm -hmm. like it's because anything that happens you would just have that new paradigm and then whatever you have as natural laws would sort of just be like, okay, and so now we have these aspects now that we've dealt with all these things and these are the immutable things that are are, are not going to be, change or whatever. Okay, well, let me, let me, let me frame it in, in a, maybe a better way. Um, if we were to have like a, like a roadmap of human culture and society, are we discovering a pre-existing roadmap like, do, do the parameters by which we need to live ideally, did they already come built into the structure of this universe and we're merely decoding the universe and how it works and how we can best live within it? Or are we creating the map of how to live in this universe actively? That's another way to say it. Yeah, Oof. that's a big so, one. <laughs> um, so, so, so I would say then that we, what we do is we abstract those maps. Okay. So that it needs, so, so let, we could call the internet an abstraction or a fractal of like 
aspects of the life that we had in analog terms. Mm -hmm. Any newspaper, any type of like communication or anything like that is, because all of that stuff like is only real in that particular substrate. It's not material in the same type of sense. But it is, it's an abstraction, yeah. Correct. And so when we talk about things like cryptocurrencies or video games or any of these things, so now I'm sort of getting fairly postmodern here, but like, I think that's what we do. I think we deconstruct and reconstruct like a, a level out. Okay. That's, that's what, I think that's what our culture does. We do change substrates, certainly. Crypto would be an excellent abstraction of the, the very concept of money, which started with cash and coins and shillings. And, but, but that could be like, de-abstracted, like taking that down to its fundamental level, it's that we could that we could value our our labor and save it and trade it for for a future, sure. right? Like so, we're we're bargaining with the future. We're claiming that there's value to labor. That would be the level of analysis where you'd say, well, there's the natural law, right? The natural law right. is that we can barter with the future. Right. That seems to be like that. That's a weird substrate because we got to have a thing to hold in our hands. So then we talk about cash. And then eventually we said, well, it's dumb to walk around with these pieces of paper. So now it's crypto. And we continue to scientifically abstract these same ideals. But is the ideal of bartering with the future and saving and storing your your the value of your labor? That seems to be non-negotiable. Is there a world where even that rule can be bent and broken or is that a natural law? Well, it depends. I feel like when we talk about like the word value, for instance, that's not something that like in and of itself, like value has meaning. But as far as labor goes, we've our relationship to it has definitely changed. So yep. if you're talking about your labor specifically, again, like I feel like I'm having conversations like from my my blackness, I guess, um, just just remembering that slaves existed and if, if we're talking about culture where generatively would slaves fit and 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 at least they weren't so the question is changing a little bit okay. from who gets the value like who gets the the profit from that um, I actually was trying to go from go into a more of a postmodern thing to have those types of abstractions without a basis, which is the idea of like Baudrillard and the like, where we're talking about how we um, interact with things um, in a very hyper real sense, but they don't have they're they're not signifying anything in real life. Um, God, so that's a gosh, full, fully like, fully constructionist view is where you're getting. Yeah. Okay, the parasocial relationships in social media would be a great example. Okay. Um, be, so, because relationships are something else that have been abstracted um, by the internet. Um, I mean, sure. beyond, I mean, internet dating is, I guess, the easy example. But in all of the ways that we would say that we are um, in a relationship with each other, friendships, romantic connections, like all of those things have fundamentally changed. Like we don't talk to each other in the same ways. I mean, texting is a great example. And now I feel like a freaking boomer, <laughs> but there are things that are, there are things that are lost 
um, eye contact, tone of voice, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so they're not only open to interpretation, but like they are interacted with as though they are, I don't know, like, I'm not saying that true human connection isn't possible in those ways. It's just, we almost change the definition of connection whenever we talk about connection in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, if, if we're only talking about like dopamine states <laughs> and, and the way that our brain processes like um, systems of like reward, like that good feeling that we get, that's not, we may get that to some extent, but that's not how my mother and father interacted with each other. And that's not the foundation that they built their life on. Mm-hmm. That's not th- any, like the, the ways that we learn about our partners and grow and uh, the evidence that we use to decide that we're going to be with a person. Um, I feel like somebody that were, that existed in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, would have a good argument to say that they were built on a much more solid foundation in many cases mm-hmm. than people are um, now. I mean, there are completely different and contracting arg- contrasting arguments to that. Sure. But I am a little old fashioned in that respect. I prefer what I can like have right here and actually interact with where less is lost. Sure. This is, um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're dancing around quantifying consciousness too, right? To, to truly understand if we can, let's just say, completely and entirely manipulate these reward systems to a, to a degree where you can't tell the difference between the experience of someone dating face-to-face in the 50s and 60s versus, I don't know, hacking your nervous system and dating purely through in a digital realm somehow, right? Like, can we ever... Can we ever truly replicate what it is that the people in the 50s and 60s and for all of human history were experiencing? Can science ever truly replicate that substrate, whatever that connective feeling is? I, I think that you and I won't live long enough to see such a thing. And so our nostal- your nostalgia that you described for that, that, let's just say, analog connectivity is pretty valid because there's nothing that really competes with that that exists just yet. I think the question... Uh, you know, talking like the furthest progressive left would be, you know, do you think that's coming? You know, do you think we will live to see uh, where some of these analog air quotes like like <laughs> traditional human experiences can be manipulated by science to a degree where you can no longer tell? You can no longer tell the difference whatsoever, right? And in which case, I, I, if, if that's the case, then we do construct humanity in its entirety. That's not my belief. I think we're still operating in obedience to some sort of law that we don't fully understand yet. But that that is the the hinge here. I think it's interesting that like whenever we talk, whenever I was talking about like our relationship to like the analog, we're both musicians. Like the obvious parallel is not only the romanticization of like the past and when things were analog yes. with tape and like master and with records like physical records, um, but like anal like Euro rack uh, synthesizers and all of and uh, analog drums over digital drums would be the most obvious thing. Yes. Um, even this the the war of like in person instruction uh, over um, online instruction online instruction even in even the difference between like buying video packs and having a coach 
right? Because now I am out of that game. I don't see anybody in real life anymore. All of my lessons have moved to Zoom. And I do my best to supplement with like different video angles or whatever, but there I can't put my hands on your hands. You can't you can't see every single angle of how I'm holding the stick. Correct. Um you, there are certain subtle pitch variations in the practice pad that's much easier to get whenever you're right there versus the whenever you're in the room. Yeah. Like all of these little things. And it's like, it's inarguable that things are lost. It's just that, is it with the freedom argument, um, are those things worth keeping for the trade-off, for the trade-off of being able to reach for for your case, um, being able not being constrained by time that is the that is the gift of recording all of your of recording lessons um, yeah. beforehand yeah. and selling them because not only can you teach anybody at whatever time of day but you can teach them simultaneously and so like your um, it's no longer constricted your sellability. You're like your profitability is no longer constrained by the same time constraints as a, a like I get it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, I uncomfortably dance in those two worlds all the time because I'm uh quite analog in many of my, my views. You know, I enjoy <laughs> being a human for, for a, a lack of better words. Uh, I enjoy a lot of organic activities. You could say, I like the connectivity and I value some of the, let's just call them like like sacred human experiences that science doesn't really have a way to replicate or touch just yet. Um, so mm. I, I'm with you. I dance in both both of those worlds. It it's a it's a double edged sword. All progression in technology is certainly a double edged sword, and it's tough to know what deal we're making as we're making it. Right? Like what specifically have we left behind when the drum machine was first invented? When someone first discovered that we can use binary code to program music, what precisely is the deal that we have made with the universe here? And it, it, it's it's unknowable. It's unknowable. And in many ways, this conversation is us trying to discuss what exactly that deal is. So, well, what deal is it that we're actually making? And if only we right. had a time machine, we would clearly see like, well, here's how the experiment turns out. Turns out we can quantify all of this and, you know, we can actually improve humanity, which is one of the questions that you asked. We can improve humanity to a degree that you couldn't imagine. We can not only improve it, we can perfect it. Isn't it fucking fascinating how many times you can loop these varying <laughs> topics and eventually abstract all the way to like, is God real or not? Know, <laughs> Basically, like, where, where you fucking land every it, single it, time. It's awesome, <laughs> but it's also... If God is real or not has nothing to do with what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Like, you know, <laughs> or <it's>, everything <laughs> to do with what you're going to have for dinner tonight. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh, because so if you're talking about like some type of like uh, divine determinism, because I mean, I don't think that. I, so here I am back with Sam Harris, uh, <laughs> this idea um what what are we talking about when we're talking about free will? Because I feel like it's hard, unless you're a Calvinist, it is hard to parse uh, a scientific understanding of the universe um, 
plus consciousness as an emergent property of the universe. Now, if you don't believe that, if you believe that like consciousness is like a fundamental force mm-hmm. or even more like consciousness, like the universe is actually conscious to some extent, then you don't fall into this category. But um, if you don't, and you're thinking that mm-hmm. consciousness is like a, a property of, of existence, like a biological um emergent property of the universe then it's hard to get out of determinism it really is like this is the one thing that i agree with whenever i hear apologists talk on um on youtube or wherever i think that they're right i just don't think that it is as mm-hmm. it it's as um nihilistic as they think i don't think that because it doesn't do anything to affect okay I still have something that appears like choice in a very like Dan Dennett sense, like a, a, a compatibilist type of sense. Sure. Where what we want or what we treasure is the feeling that we are in control of our actions and the ability to hold actors responsible for their actions. Yeah, absolutely. And Sam Harris's argument on free will is is undoubtedly one of the strongest that's ever been pitched, all the way to the the origin of thought, how everything seems to appear from from nothing you know trying to pin down your free will is is a, an impossible task it's it's really almost impossible to actually pin it down which is a stronger argument for the atheistic view of the world because why on earth would god create beings that do not have agency that seems to be right. closer to like a description of simulation theory like is he playing a fucking video game like if we don't originate our thoughts and have agency to make these decisions then what in the world is the game even for right um but, which comes with that that nihilistic sprinkle in there as well um but you know as sam harris describes it even that that realization of that belief is almost beautiful in a sense because it it grants you the ability to be the observer in a certain way, and even to be the observer of something so so magnificent, let's just say, there's beauty in that as well, and whatever choice you may have within that game, well, it's hard to pin down exactly where that is, but right. if you believe you have any at all, that, then, you know, best sorry. of luck, like, enjoy the ride, you know, that, that, that sort of if thing. If we're talking about games, it's easy to switch all the way back to COVID, and, and if we're in COVID, or... So the the game in the Garden of Eden, let's say, in the biblical narrative is different than the game that we have in the American system. Like the game, according okay. to me, was that um, the that God, the Christian God, put uh, like Adam and Eve in a garden um, with rules without um, but not really the necessary understanding for the consequences of their actions. Right. Um, and, and, and in agent, at least in a okay. legal sense, uh-huh. that is really, really important for the responsibility argument. Like for us, we consider uh, like the rational consequences mm-hmm. of our actions to be a huge point a pivot point of how we feel like how we deem who's responsible for what, if something goes awry completely and it could not have been predicted by anybody, then we either call those things, we call those things tragedies often, right? Um, if we can separate things like intent sure. or negligence or malice from them, then they're tragedies without um, a person that we point a finger to. And, and in that way, the Garden of Eden is the worst case for 
a god putting in like children into a situation and then having it you have a whole christian tradition that says that these children are the reason that like millions if not billions of people are going to hell sure and and you're absolutely right because how could you prescribe um some it's easier to prescribe ignorance than it is you know malice or negligence in some case because obviously they did not know it's a lot closer to children who did not have a proper grasp on the consequences of their action and, and to say that that dictated the moral landscape for the rest of eternity doesn't make any fucking sense at all. I think it's it's my interpretation of Adam and Eve is far more of like a primitive metaphorical narrative that is certainly certainly not not void of error, um, but that it's it's far more of like an abstracted thing. And this is a game that you and I probably spent uh, you know a few decades playing with the Bible of like how easy it is to kick the legs out from under certain certain stories like this. Um, I've grown to look at it a touch more in the in the metaphorical sense where I think given the knowledge at the time, what this story was intended to represent, is there a core fundamental truth to it? And if I can abstract that, I'm interested in abstracting that and then throwing away the rest. Right. But my point, I think, is to not to say that American citizens are necessarily children, but they're at least ignorant on like uh, molecular and biological like sophistication to not necessarily um, to to be scientific children um, in the face of an epidemic or a pandemic. Well, it's hard. You're talking about a lot of a lot of faith and trust in uh, <laughs> back to flat earthers, things we don't understand, <laughs> tools we can't verify, chemicals I don't know the name of. Yeah. It's, so it's I, I guess more about how we uh, assign responsibility, I guess. Like are we are we in the position to truly be responsible for that type of thing given our lack of understanding of that thing? Sure. Sure. That's a very complicated that's a complicated wormhole. <laughs> Absolutely. So, dude, I would love to close out with with and we don't have to go super hard on this topic, but I would love to close out briefly on on the concept of of race and group identity in general, because sure. I have a feeling we we don't line up on that. But sure. I also know that you, you don't strike me as a person who's easily offended. And I have, have a feeling that that you trust I have a good will for this conversation, despite any disagreements we may have. Um, so you've, you've mentioned a couple of things like your blackness or speaking as a black man, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to, to what degree do you attribute your identity to your race? That's a really interesting question because I feel like a lot of that is cultural, right? It's the fact, mm-hmm. it's not just the fact that I'm black, but blackness is a, it, it's a, so race is a social construct. That's the first thing. That's my belief in race. I don't think that there are true biological differences or like su- sufficient biological differences to say that I'm different from me or different well, from any other person, right? But we could certainly uh, say, well, just to clarify, we could certainly say there are biological differences in, let's just say, the amount of melanin in your your skin would dictate a different mm-hmm. color, and that would that would change your predisposition to skin cancer. Right. True. I mean, that certainly is a racial distinction that's true, valid. True. But um, I wouldn't draw a different classification because, oh, my gosh, I have to be I have to be kind of careful here because there are historically race has been used a lot like species was used. Yes. Right. Sure. Th- this and. 
and we both know that we don't mean race that way. Like we mm-hmm. are, we are similar enough that um, we could. I mean, if one of us were female, or you know, had a brother or a sister, like our clans could intermingle without a uh, biological concern. Right. Correct. And that would say nothing else like they would be a healthy individual and they would be, you know, welcome into the world as a, a person, as a as a human person. Um, I, I mean that. Race is one of those things where, OK. If, if a if an immigrant comes from Africa and, and they have the same skin. Um, as I do, they're not black in the same sense as I'm black. But the thing that we mean by race, the thing that I mean by race is not merely based on appearance. It's a base. It's based on how I interface with the cult, with the society that I am in and how it interfaces with me. Okay. Um, I'm not, I forget if there was a question in there or not. Uh. <laughs> okay, well let, let me let me frame it let me frame it in a in a in a conservative sort of sort of light. So sure. if you were to tell me that you were black and nothing else, nothing mm-hmm. else, I try to assign a a percentage of how much do I know this person? What can I abstract about this person um, mm-hmm. based on their blackness and nothing else? And mm-hmm. Given the nature of the individuals that I know, my entire life experience, I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than than absolutely nothing. That I sure. know nothing about this person, right? Especially if we're just going to re- reduce it to skin color. Obviously, culture certainly plays a role. If you said that they were a black person from a, if, if we confine it to a geographic area and a certain time period, then I can certainly mm. take a lot more from that. But without going going too far back in history, if we just said right now, like a black American, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're talking about the president or if we're talking about a guy in jail or if we're talking like, I don't know. Right. That's I, a very, I'm sorry. That is a very optimistic uh, way of thinking about things. And you, I, so the one thing, there are two things I can't do for one. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Like statistics are meaningless when it comes to individual um, interactions. I think that is mm-hmm. the, biggest area of misunderstanding when it comes to talking about these types of issues just because you know certain black people or you've had certain experiences that actually doesn't always abstract to an accurate picture of how a certain group's relations in a culture like is right that doesn't give you any facts about like the social um relationship of that group that's okay that's and, and and Sam Harris actually makes a very similar point when he talks about how like uh, dealing with people as individuals um, because statistics don't tell you about the person that's looking you right in the face. Right. Correct. What it, what it does yes. give you what it does give you is probabilities. It does Correct. give you the it does tell you um, certain truths in a probabilistic sense for one that I'm probably not going to live as long as you. I might. I'm not saying that I won't, but I, I probably won't just given my uh I'm a I'm a male black person. Like that is just a statistical fact. Sure. You probably have slightly higher testosterone than me. You probably Yeah, right. We could we could make a long list of probabilities based off of group statistics. Yeah. Absolutely. So 
those probabilities um colloquially are called stereotypes mm-hmm. and um and stereotypes whether or not they are um they speak to anything objectively true have functioned in certain institutions in the United States for a long time. And we have slowly started to figure out where those things are and how to address them. Now, with any type of movement, there is always going to be reactionary concerns that we are moving too far or that we are overemphasizing a particular concern. Now, the overemphasizing that particular concern I have seen from being on the left has been a, 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 a that has been the, the way to write off the conversation without going into the details, right? The, I, I talk to a lot of people that have no, so you can say that, okay, because of Barack Obama was president, then there is racism must be a marginal concern of um, most black Americans in the United States. Um, but that is the individual again, and not the statistic. That's the same thing that I was saying earlier. Like what does Barack Obama specifically tell you about the black community in general? Doesn't tell you anything. Well, it, it speaks more to the country. It doesn't speak to his group. I think it Barack Obama's just the fact that there was a black president certainly would speak to the the potential of the country, the environment, the platform in which he was raised. It speaks to that mm-hmm. that potential in which that group of the black community certainly does exist. I, I think and I mean, it's, certainly we agree that the nature of an individual cannot speak to the group and you could only abstract like statistical truths about or like you said colloquially we would call those stereotypes right but my my question would be if we were to ditch the groups entirely we just mm-hmm. say we're not looking at the groups whatsoever and we go pure hardcore individualism which mm-hmm. in my eyes you don't need to look further than than Martin Luther's argument for content of character and not color of skin sure. right i mean just really down the middle individualism what precisely is left over that's not solved? If such a view of individualism was applied in every system, in every faction of government, in every business, does that not solve any and all race problems? Uh, uh, you know, assuming that that the true actual racists are just going to die off eventually, because you know we can't play thought police; those people are real. But on a systematic level, implementing individualism does it not solve all race problems? Well, it depends on what you think the race problems are, and it depends okay. on there. There are a couple of things. The issue is implementation. Always, like how do you how do you ensure fair and unbiased hiring practices? That would be a, a good place to start. Like, what would okay. be a a a reasonable way of saying, okay, look, like all we're going to do is look at these sets of, of of figures we're not going to even look at the person's name we're not going to look at the person's um picture or anything like that we're pure meritocracy just, yeah pure meritocracy right so what you're talking about is removing race from um a lot of forms a lot of hiring forms a lot of all of this stuff which i actually kind of uh, agree with i think yeah, that i'd absolutely um, be in favor of that 
But the thing, the thing that you would have to do is you'd have to revamp certain structures that already have practices. You're talking about there are places that still um, give preferential loans. Now, I'm not saying those things are legal. That, that that's this is where, oh, this is where certain debates I've seen debates go off the rails. I know where, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Where they'll, somebody will say, well, these people do this. And I'm like, they'll say, well, show me the law that says that that's cool. And I'm like, well, okay, there is no law. Then what are you talking about? Okay, so why aren't, um, why aren't regulators or whatever, like enforcing or going after those places? Why don't we have the arm of like racial justice um, that because what we do, we only see we only seem to fit loud or fix loud problems, right? We seem to f like any time that there is true racism, like what I mean by true racism, because so my neighbor is a police officer, right? A black police officer at that. We've had, oh my gosh, I, probably the most transformative conversation about uh, policing in this country that I've ever had was with him. Okay, and I learned a lot of things about that I didn't know. For instance. Um, that that police standards are not uh, federalized, like mm -hmm. like police operate completely differently in my town uh, than they do the town over and your town and and New York and in Ohio and all of these other places. And as soon mm -hmm. as you hear uh, a situation about uh, altercation with a police officer, like all of the concerns aren't equal. Uh, like there's no police union down here, really. Um, yeah. And they don't or they don't have the same uh, and like the police unions in the Midwest don't operate the same as they do in New York, for instance. And so mm -hmm. like that blue line of silence is something that people are concerned with, but they are more likely to be the case in New York than somewhere like in Ohio. OK, right. Right. All of these little like nuances of things that but most of the time the media paints this broad brush picture that we tend to like treat all cops everywhere the same, which is a concern for me as being a black person already being fed um, this whole, like, I should be fearful of the police in general. Sure. Right? And yeah. The the fact is, is here in, in my town, I probably shouldn't fear the police as much as if I lived somewhere else. Yeah. This is one of the problems I, I have with the, and you haven't made any of these statements, but like very large sweeping blanket statements about race in the entire country you know, you can you can definitely debunk some of those sweeping statements by saying, well, where precisely were you? Right. Because mm -hmm. your likelihood to be treated a, treated a certain way based off of merely the color of your skin and nothing else by a police officer would would undoubtedly change depending on where you are. Right. I mean, if you mm -hmm. want if you want to go to the middle of nowhere in Alabama to an entirely white town as a black man, I have no problem conceding that you will probably be treated differently here based off of the color of your skin and nothing else. You can find that level of racism in that part of the world. But we can go, you know, I know that I, as a white person, I definitely can't walk down Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Detroit. Like, I'm going to get fucked up because of the color of my skin. That's a very, that's a real thing too. So it, it's only, it, and I know you're you're very aware that these conversations are far more nuanced than like the media likes to paint them out. You 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 describe them as painting with a very broad brush, and it's never ever that simple. I think the way I look at it is, in my in my life, I have I have always treated people as individuals. Even in my own mind, I've had a hard time placing people into these particular groups and thinking of them that way. And so it's almost like. 
like if you were to get, I had this, this discussion with a, a liberal friend of mine a while ago where he was talking about, let's just say a hypothetical black woman who had two kids. She was a single mother um, and she was disadvantaged in category A, category B, category C. She had everything stacked up against her. Mm-hmm. And he was speaking about all of these things, all of all of these systems that ultimately leave her just high and dry. She's fucked no mm-hmm. matter what she does. But I asked him, what would you say to this woman? Let's just call her Mrs. Johnson. If Mrs. Johnson came in here and sat in front of you as an individual to an individual, I don't think you would say any of the same things to her. I think you would actually give her much more of a motivational American spirit, sort of a conservative ideology that you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps. We can take advantage of this, this, and this. Here's what we can change. Here's the the garden that we can touch and manifest things in in our own life. And you would... You would speak to that woman as though she was not part of the group. You would you would want to empower her as an individual to beat all of those statistical odds that are against her. That's how any rational, kind person would speak to an individual within that group. But we sometimes speak to the group identity as though there are no individuals within it. And if there were, and you spoke to them, I don't know that we would have the same the same advice. Like like imagine even if you believed that fundamentally black people were an oppressed group of people at statistical disadvantages. Even if I believed that, I don't know that I would ever say that and that alone to an individual black person. I wouldn't dare say that to them. Even if I believed it was true, I would have a very different message, right? Oh, sure. But, you know, it's almost like what conversation are we having? Like, are we having the conversation that like on an individual level, how we should treat people? Or are we having the conversation like here's here are the policies that we should vote for because we understand like the the specific types of things that this group has to deal with? Like, you know, you going and talking about uh, this this woman that's disadvantaged and what you would say to her, um, you know, being in a position where you really couldn't do anything else to help say, um, you know, you're not a financial planner or you don't work in loans or whatever. You can't do anything materially. Um, Like the way that I would talk to her understanding her situation, but being extremely like, I wouldn't just say, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. um, Maybe not that catchphrase. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because it's like, okay. There are so many problems there. Are, and, and some of these are cultural. I'm, I don't want to put it all on America because that would be extremely easy to do. Like the fact that like there are still co- uh, communities in this country that are um, dealing with the um, the implications of redlining um, and, and the loans that their families could uh, could and couldn't get and where they were allowed to live and the communities that have underperforming schools because for some strange reason, education is tied to property taxes. Um, and, and so you, you have poor areas and you're going to have poor underprivileged schools and those kids are going to not perform as well because of those situations. Mm-hmm. Um like that that is a real material thing that we can talk about and talk about like solutions on how to fix that's not in any way a um 
an individual issue. Like I'm not going to go into a, a go to a kid and lecture him on state economics. I'm going to say, let me see if I can buy a book for you. Let me see if like um, I can find a, a tutoring program for you, or find some volunteers that can help fill the gaps of your um, your struggling school. Um, that see if we can help. Like that. Those are the types of situations. And so, but I feel like all the time in these types of conversations, the the individual level and the structural level or the group level are often conflated to say that like, and the same thing with your side, if we're talking about um, like, let's say that um, white people are privileged, right? What people here are, you specifically, Adam, are you have that you've had things handed to you and and you don't know how good you have it instantly this is what happens you get defensive because you know how hard you've worked in your whole life you know that you have struggled and you know that you have put much thought and you and much discipline into reaching the level of success you don't think that anything anyone has handed you a goddamn thing and anytime you hear anything about privilege even though you accept the fact that as an american on the world stage you are privileged in a different way to be a part of let's say what how did you describe the United States earlier like that like being a part of like the cultural center and the richest nation of the world that itself provides you with opportunities um, that you would not have if you you lived in another country and lived in a, a poorer country and those types of pri and we're usually talking about privileges not made necessarily on that scale because that scale gdp wise and all everything else like our cultures are much closer than let's say uh some failed state somewhere sure right sure. but but it's the type of privilege that um we're more likely talking about than someone handing like coming like putting their arm around your shoulder saying like come here boy i have something to give you and you're like you don't have to worry about a thing like that sure, i feel like sure. that is like a caricature of what most people mean when they say privilege one of the interesting criticisms that you're making and it's probably valid is that that you know, what type of privilege are we talking about? And you're saying that that someone in my position might often personalize it, where you're saying, "Well, I know how hard that I've worked," yet simultaneously, I do accept that I'm privileged to be an American. And there's an irony there because I'll let I'll grant you some privileges and get hyper defensive off of others, right? And I do see that irony, but I think the proper level of analysis is always on the individual because if we were to to let's take the the left concept of intersectionality where we could have, uh, I've, I've given this analogy on this podcast before, but let's just say that we have, um, um, we got four parameters. We've got black women, we could find out how they're oppressed, certainly. Uh, or let's just say black, that's mm -hmm. the parameter. Then we have women, then we have uh, disabled, right? People in wheelchairs. Then we have like low IQ. So these are four different types of oppression that one could have. And you have four separate groups of people, four group identities. But then we could take, we could take where they intersect and we could take a group of disabled black women, right? And then we could throw on top of there that they're gay. So this is like a super intersectionality conversation here, right? We've got a very, very oppressed group of people. But even among that group 
of clearly oppressed people, there is a hierarchy of oppression because we just have to find the one who has the lowest IQ among the group and they are therefore the most oppressed person. It's sort of a route back to individualism in that no matter which privileges I grant and which ones I don't, ultimately I am an insanely complex recipe of advantages and disadvantages, most of which I have no control over. So if I were to grant you my white privilege, you would have to grant me a thousand other versions of oppression that I could list for you that are hyper unique to me. My parents got divorced when I was young. I broke a bunch of bones when I was a young kid. I got in a car accident at this point. I was actually super introverted at this period in my life. I had a horrible breakup and experience, right? Like I have this, this list of, of advantages and disadvantages that is so hyper complex that it almost seems like to throw me in a group based off of any one privilege seems to be not telling the whole story. So for example, if we use your blackness to put you within some sort of an oppressed group, well, you're also very intelligent, very, very intelligent. So even within the group identity of, the, of let's just say, oppressed black people, you would be very, very high within that, that hierarchy, right? You're certainly less depressed, uh, oppressed, than someone with a lower IQ than you. Like It's like, which privilege or disadvantage are we going to focus in on? And then how complex is your recipe, right? I hate the word oppression. Okay. I hate the word oppression because I hate the implication that there is an oppressor. Right. I feel like ah, anti-Marxist. That, that yes, has sir. <laughs> <laughs> that that it has so much baggage to it. It does. Right? It does. Um the 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 fact that it's there's somebody doing something to us, right? Oppression, as far as I understand it, is just the negative ways that we interface with our society or ways that we would interface that give ourselves unique, that uh, present a unique challenges that other people don't have, okay. right? So I would, I would love to reframe this argument because here's the thing. I think that we should live in a society that addresses all of the stuff that you were talking about. I would love more a comprehensive uh, mental health oriented look on like human beings in general. Mm -hmm. And I would love that to permeate not just our educational system, but our, our like corporate corporations too. Because I don't, I think that at times we can have a health unhealthy relationship with work in this country, especially- Definitely. So I'm a child. I am a child of a baby boomer, right? Like my mom worked her ass off as like a, a marketing professional. and She was gone all the time. And that work ethic is something that I inherited from her. Right. And so like, but at the same time, I, I see my especially gigging musicians, you know, people not, you know, the the romanticized version of it, but the ones that know like when you have to you have a wedding coming up and you have to like cram 30 songs in a week before you can go out and make three or $400. And you do that like over and over and over again. Like there's this, there's this weird amount of work that we have to do networking with people only to for only for only for other people to make the assumption that, Oh, it's cool that you can just do the thing that you love. Oh, how nice it is to like have a hobby <laughs> to, um, you know, that you can call when you know how much blood, sweat and tears actually goes goes into this. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that all of the things that you are talking about, I mean, even 
there are still doctors to this day that think that there are differences in um like notable differences in pain tolerance between black and white people so that like the black people are under prescribed pain meds for me in in, in an example like that because i've heard those arguments before but my thing is like like show me that doctor and i will gladly fight that fucking moron right alongside you you know show me that doctor you know it's same with the judge yeah you know show show me but that judge and fuck that guy let's get him out of our political system or medical system whatever so 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 in any in any conversation that i find that i agree on those points i i find that the issues are marketing because if if we if we dial we take all we dial the temperature down just a little bit and we're not yelling at mm-hmm. each other already because i mean we're already fairly calm anyway uh, and then we take away the slogans we take away the the vast sweeping generalizations and we talk about specific topics mm-hmm. and we agree on those points then what we send what we tend to have by and large is a, a marketing problem how do we deal with because so it's like the black lives matter of people are talking about how well black lives matter uh implies that like only black lives matter it would have been better if you did all lives matter from the beginning and then there's blue lives matter but you like only some blue lives because what about the blue lives of the people that were in the capital on the 6th january all this problem group right? identity um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly like it's this team ball thing yeah that I am not, I'm not concerned about, right? You show me statistics and teach me the history and I will at the, as best as I can talk about individual specific issues that I care about. And because I will, I will let all of the rest of it go. If you don't want to call us black or you want me to use words like blackness, I'll ditch all of that stuff if it gets me to talk about specific types of reform in specific types of situations that I care about. I think that makes you probably, at least in in my own personal view, like the most rational left position that one could have, right? That it's not necessarily like that I'm clinging to some group identity necessarily, but it is the specific topic and the specific issue. And it sounds like you and I would agree there. I think the problem is, at least from a conservative perspective, it is difficult to pin those things down when we talk in, in the most broad, like like news caption terms all of the time, which, which I know that's not how you and I have conversations like this. Obviously, we we get you know in the weeds on these sort of things, but in the mm-hmm. in the big grand narrative, it never happens that way. It's always these broad strokes versus broad strokes, and we never actually unpack these issues to their core. An example of unpacking an issue to the core, though, to me, is like when if you make a claim about black people being underprescribed pain medication because there are certain doctors that have this weird, I don't know, pseudo-religious belief that black pe- women have a different pain tot. Like, I can we find that fucking guy and make sure that he never practices medicine again? Because that, you know, it's same same with cops. Like, show me the specific racist cop, and I will gladly show up at that march. Like, no problem. But you know, it's it's when we when we broaden things out to the to the widest degree, I have a very very hard time fighting. Let's just say racist doctors, and we can't nail beyond that. Well, sure. And the issue is like figuring out if individual instances ever create trends. Like the issue I find is that like the 
conservatives that tend to value or in a sense sometimes overvalue concepts like individualism have a hard time with sociologists because what sociologists jobs are are to take data points and to make broader statements about populations that's what they do mm-hmm. and so like so then it, it becomes are there enough data points in that trend in a specific direction to say oh yeah, that institution is probably racist. And if that's the case, on a marketing perspective, do you want to frame it that way? Um, I see Because right now you yeah. don't. Yeah. You don't because you, you already have like a subset of people allergic to anything that points to identity, um, period, right? And so how can you say... Um, how can you say that this group of people is affect like women are disproportionately affected by osteoporosis in their old age? Like you could call that like a biological fact, right? Mm-hmm. But we are not to the point yet that sociological facts are are viewed like scientific facts or biological and, facts. But see, yet. this is one of the problems, though. I think is that there are. In any given situation, any given domain, let's just take the the study of sociology, the amount of facts that we could abstract from that study is is so close to infinite that it becomes very tricky to to choose which frame you're going to look through because we could certainly find uh, a sociological data point that would point to a a very specific trend that would say, I don't like the word, but like black oppression or at least a a systematic disadvantage of black people. I don't don't have any doubt. I like that one better. Yeah. Yeah. Like systematic disadvantage. Sure. We could find those data points, no problem. But if we wanted to find data points that would point to a, a different philosophical conclusion, there are many of those as well. Like the highest GDP of black families in the entire world is in the U.S. Like, I mean, we could we could each name contrasting data points, like proving different points. It's like the amount of facts that we can abstract from the study of sociology is so close to infinite that it's like you and I can frame up any argument on either side and make it terrifyingly convincing. But it, it's a matter of framing. Which which frame are you choosing to look through? Because if, if I sent you on the mission of tell me why America is good for black people and you were purely using sociological data points, I don't think you'd run out of awesome things to list. And if I gave you the exact so, opposite goal, you also would not run out of things to list of why it was the most oppressive country that ever existed. Well, it depends on what you mean um, by America being good or let's say even the best for for black people. Like it's one of those things like all of those topics would probably be the same for any racial group right now, period, just because of the specific privileges that America America affords its citizens. Right. And so you aren't parsing out the differences between the you're not saying anything about the relationship between black people and white people in the United States, say, which is most of the time what people are are talking about. Right. So you could pivot easily into like this weird type of gratitude argument about black people just should be happy that they're here in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um Easily, the thing that you could talk about is like, okay, what is the average uh, GDP or like um, wealth of a black family versus a white family in this country? And um, that might tell you something different 
even if it does break down differently by community and you can follow those trends too. The point that I guess I'm trying to make is that I am also aware that you can manipulate statistics to tell stories. Yes, but that's what the, I'm saying, uh, the, basically. Yeah, correct. But but the thing that I am most interested in is learning more things. Because the more data points that we have, the more of a complete picture um, we have of the way things are in this country. Now, my fear, my, my fear in you saying that I'm... I understand the general sentiment that learning more things, the more data points you have, the more complete the overall picture would be. But when I use the word like infinite facts, I'm fearful that that is actually true, that the amount of data points that one could abstract to pitch virtually any argument are unlimited, that we could write, that you could make, like if we were to say, like, just just take the really base argument that like uh, black people should be grateful to be here, which is oversimplified, but like, let's just say you wanted to make that case. Like, I think you could find hundreds of thousands of data points to support that argument. And if you wanted to make a case that, well, but compared to the GDP of an average white family, the the black GDP is actually much lower. Hundreds of thousands of data points. Like, I don't know that you will ever abstract enough of them to say I have the whole picture because someone with an opposing view will say, well, hey, I changed my frame a little bit and I abstracted another 100,000 views for another argument. It, It almost leads me to believe that like, we will not fundamentally conclude any of these debates using sociology, right? That it is almost like, it's like an infinite game for some reason, because I, I don't know, if we were to even have this, this like data points of your life to, to, to support if you're, a, if you're a good guy or a bad guy, well, dude, if we have access to your thoughts and we're gonna start making lists of good and bad things, this is infinite. This is infinite. There is no conclusion to playing that game. We're just going to keep abstracting facts and we're just going to argue whichever set of facts we happen to frame up. I worry that the study of sociology Mm -hmm. in general and collecting these data points will never paint a complete picture because we'll never abstract all of the facts. Well, sure. But like facts alone don't really tell you anything. What do you want? What are you trying to say? We're, we're now we're back to the, the, the right and left divide, like uh, talking about values. And yeah, what are your what are your values? What are you trying to prove in the first place? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so and so we're on the same. I don't think the I mean, I think infinite is a useful term. I don't think that's necessarily true. You're, you're right. Um, but 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 I understand what you're I understand the sentiment, right? There are so many directions um, that you can pull something. But the issue is, it's like there are certain things that you could disprove with those facts, too. Like, I mean, uh, there are the influx of Chinese products in this country has um, a disproportionate effect on the uh, obesity in black children. Okay. I mean, I'm not, uh, there are black children that are obese and uh, we get a lot of Chinese products in this country, right? And so if I if I had an anti-China sentiment in so much as it was tied to my racial identity, um, it would be an interesting case to make, you could make if that I case. was trying to. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if I could because I don't, I don't know the data, right? I'm not sure, like this is just a hypothetical to say, uh, it might be possible for me to find the data points that c- 
correlate with the amount of um, Chinese products in this country that also happens to correlate with like correct the yeah. way that we process food and <laughs> like the way that we eat and, and all of these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also know that correlation does not imply causation. And there are other logical frameworks that we have. Like we have frameworks of reason mm-hmm. to help us, hopefully, to help us parse some of the like the mist, some of the uh, haze of pure facts into what are most likely rational conclusions. And most what you just said just seemed a little bit too reductionist for my taste. Sure. Well, it's, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I am reducing sociology to like a game not worth playing because it's an ever, (laughs) yeah, I I do. I understand. (laughs) I understand what what you're saying for sure. But that, that sentiment at least, which I, I know you understand to me, this, this is what always routes me back to individualism where the proper plane Mm. on which to address every problem is at the individual level, given that the amount of factors we could, extract sociologically are at least close to infinite at least in that you and i will never actually quantify all of them i worry that 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 data point map if it had tens of thousands of data points that like someone could come in with a different value set and be like i got ten thousand more data points like haha and i i do wonder if sociological studies group identity thinking even on a purely scientific level i do wonder if that will ever paint a helpful picture as much as it will two individuals sitting down and talking to each other right like i find this to be so much significantly more impactful than any any uh, uh you know you and i have access to groups of people but this is this is the substrate of this conversation is so much more impactful than addressing the groups you know or or even thinking about about the groups i don't know it kind of makes sense no absolutely um because you tend to value because i mean this is the context to value that type of thing i hope that like you find interacting with people and conversations uh valuable but whenever we talk about politics i feel like we necessarily change topics. I think that's where the right and the left kind of happens, where when we talk about groups, when we're talking about representation, because that's the way our government works, we're always going to be talking about like groups and not individuals. We have to because we have we reduce everything so much at the congressional level and then ultimately at the presidential level where we have these people that our system has designated as representatives to like huge swaths of people. Um I don't think that I, I think the divide is always going to be there there to stay, but I don't think that we can um I don't think that we can neglect that we just live in a society of groups and and those groups are subject to change and we will probably not live as you said uh we will not live to see the day where those groups actually change enough for them to be recognizable to us but given how society has functioned they will and and the people that are alive 300 years ago uh, sorry 300 years from now will be talking about completely different groups but probably in the exact same types of terms sure you're right and i I will grant you one last thing for sure that the groups do exist you can't pretend that they don't i think my 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 pitch for individualism would be more so that the healthiest group is merely a group of healthy individuals and that that's why my my Mm -hmm. level of analysis always routes me back to to individuals because i believe that 
healthy individuals make up the most badass groups on the planet, right? Um, sure. Yeah, and that's a, that's a whole, oh God, <laughs> that's a whole whole different level that we can go down for sure. But dude, this was an awesome conversation. I feel like you and I just need, like you said, some bourbon and like another four hours or so, and maybe not even that would cut it, dude. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do this again. I This was so much fun, and it took me, I feel like it took me a while to kind of get my thoughts together. Oh, you're good, man. But, and dude, I mean, you are you are a great conversation leader. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And to be honest, what I appreciate about you most is that your your depth of thought is is it's difficult to reach the what's the way to say it? Like, you know, when you talk with people, let's just not name anybody, but people who who are not as deep of thinkers. And it's it's frustrating sometimes when I don't have to scratch too far below the surface before I find the bottom of their thought and mm-hmm. go, oh, that's where you landed. Like, this is where you last left off on this problem. And now I have to be responsible for taking the conversation to a new depth. And this is unexplored territory for you. But it is really refreshing to talk with someone who... Like your bottoms are low. Like you've been to all these places before, <laughs> right? So it's like, oh shit, we're not even close to like your bottom on this topic, you know? But I really enjoy that, man. It allows the conversation to be significantly more exploratory in that it's just two people just stampeding into the unknown and, you know, figuring out like, hey, you way the fuck over there. Oh shit, you're over there. Like it, I like that, that right. open landscape um, type of thing, man. So your depth of thought is really appreciated here, man. This was killer. Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much. Uh, there was one thing I remember, uh, but I got chills when you said it, and it'll be interesting to go back and rewatch it. Um. <laughs> awesome. Hell yeah, brother. But yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you soon, my man.